You're listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Putnam. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. Joined today by Mark Lobliner. Mark, how you doing, brother? I'm doing fantastic. It's a beautiful Sunday. You know, it's going to be like 90 degrees out. Already got a little sweat going. It's great. Nothing like sunlight to start your day. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I usually get up before I see the sunlight, but that's because I like dragging my 16-year-old out to the gym. That, that's amazing because, you know, like we talk about, it's good to get those kids active, and it's good to get them moving. It's good to teach them that discipline of getting out of bed. And, you know, that's, that's what I try to instill. My, my kids don't have to, like, you know, I had to build from nothing. And my kids, you know, they have stuff, you know? So how, when you have stuff, do you instill the work ethic, ethic that fight or flight? And that's what makes people successful. And that's where I think a lot of society is failing is parents are either pushovers or the dads just aren't there altogether. So, and I, I believe that obviously a mom can teach work ethic. I learned a lot from my mom. She moved here from another country, started a business, employed people. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think that that's where you're doing what you need to do. And that's why your kid, my kids, they have a high probability. Now there's a chance you have that outlier high probability of being pretty darn relatively successful. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, saying you, you know, you came up from nothing. Uh, you, uh, you're pretty successful now with Tiger Fitness and your clothing line and your supplement line, but you had some uh, kind of a rough childhood. You want to maybe go into that a little bit, how that led you to where you are today? You know, I think that you know, I wouldn't trade my childhood for the world. You know, it's, um, I had, I, I was basically, you know, my family was good up till about around nine or 10 years old. And around that time, my mom is, she actually served in the Israeli defense force. So my mom is a badass, you know, um, but she succumbed to drug addiction from PTSD, from a car accident, whatever you want to make it from. But essentially she became a drug addict. Everything we had, we lost. My dad got really sick complications from type 2 diabetes essentially everything that my father and mother worked to have it was gone so I went from the age of 10 to probably 17 when I moved out of the house of uh, just stuff kids shouldn't see stuff kids shouldn't be a part of you know those things and you know it really taught me a lot about survival um, it taught me a lot. I look at my kids now and they're you know my, my daughter's 14 and she's just now learning how to microwave stuff you know and at 10 years old, I was literally taking care of myself. I was alone a lot of the time. My mom was in and out of mental institutions and rehabs. And it taught me a lot. And, you know, not knowing what the next day is going to hold. And then I got involved in, you know, some street stuff, which was stupid, which was a risk, which could have led down completely the wrong path. But, you know, things, I was very fortunate to be in a country where if you figure out where you're going to go, you can take it as far as you want to go. And at around... You know, at around 15, 14 years old, I decided that, you know what, I'm going to get involved in football. You know, I was a baseball. Baseball was my sport growing up. But football was great because it was it was it didn't require. And I, I don't want to you know insult any of my fellow American football players, but um, it was a sport that if you played a non-skilled position, if you're stupid enough to run into someone as hard as you can, you're probably going to be pretty good at it. And I was pretty strong. I had good speed and that was able to kind of get me out. At 16, I actually met my wife. Um, she asked me out and that kind of put me oh. down the right path, so to speak, and got me out of the life I was in. And so I, I definitely, when people say that, 
that you have privilege or, you know, you, you have this, there's this. I'm like, I didn't have any of that. And I grew up in a very diverse community, you know, extremely diverse community, obviously. And I, I think that, and, and obviously I've never, the thing we have, we lack as human beings, it seems now in the Twitter age is that people don't have empathy. Like I understand when someone says, you don't know what it's like to be this. I don't, but you don't know what it's like to live my life until you lived a day in my shoes, until you grew up in my, my surroundings and what I grew up in what I had to handle. None of us know exactly what other people are going through, but we need empathy for that. So to assume that, you know, just cause I'm where I'm at now and I look how I look, that it just all came to me. Oh no, no, not at all. I had as many or more struggles than a lot of people in my situation, but I'm very fortunate. The thing I had is that both my parents, regardless of their faults, they always stayed together. You know, they stayed a unit. I did have a dual parent household. Um, and as, as broken as it was, um, it was, it was there. So I always had, my dad was a very loyal man. You know, my mom was a very hard worker despite her faults. So I always look at the bright side. I wouldn't trade my childhood for anything because it made me into the person I am today. Yeah. yeah um, I've done a lot of research into post-traumatic growth. And it's usually the ones who are uh, successful uh, majoritively you know, throughout mm -hmm. their adulthood life. And they've they, they've came from something that was hard, mm -hmm. you know, um, like myself, for example, uh, my dad died 28 years ago. And in my entire life, I think I spent three weeks with him. Wow. Yeah. He was in Vietnam. Uh, he got agent orange and the entire time that he was alive, that I was around, uh, at least that I can remember, uh, he was in a hospital bed with oxygen, you know, and so when he died, I was with my mother and my younger brother. She remarried the same year my father died because she needed someone to take care of her. And I don't fault her for that. Uh, stepfather was a very vicious and abusive man. Beat the shit out of me until I was 12 and I fought back. And then my mother put me up for adoption because I fought back. I was ruining the household pretty much. Wow. And then... I was adopted, age 17, I left the house, ended up meeting my wife. I've got nine kids, eight boys, one girl, all with my wife. Uh, but there was a period uh, with my wife when we were homeless uh, for about two years. And it was the realization of you gotta make something out of it because if you stop, it's kind of like a shark. If you stop swimming, you're gonna fucking drown. Yeah. And so, for two years, I did hard manual labor in the West Texas desert, swinging a sledgehammer for 10 hours a day at one of these uh, work today, get paid today places for 56 bucks a day. Wow. I did that for two fucking years. And now I'm a, I've got a home. I've got, you know, cars. I've got my, my business. But even still, I hear, oh, you've got privilege. And it's because, like you said, people don't understand what it took to get where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a work ethic. It's kind of like what, you know, with you with, you know, your fitness. Yeah. You, you didn't just get yoked overnight. It took years of dedication and discipline mm -hmm. to do that. And, you know, now we're living in a society where they're, everybody's just a goddamn entitled and they just sit there and they blame every fault on everyone else. Well, that's the victim mentality. And I think, you know, there's, there's very good people out there like Larry Elder and, and a lot of others who speak about the victim mentality. And the victim mentality can strike anybody, you know. And, 
you know, and I, I'm not doubting for a second these little Antifa punks. I'm not doubting they have privilege. Like, they're all riding in on $2,000 bikes, you know, and vandalizing things, you know, with their expense. Skateboards are expensive. I bought my son a skateboard, and I'm like, if my son went and hit a building with that, I'd be like, bro, don't break your skateboard. You know, like, these are privileged little brats who think that because they're privileged that every other person who has pasty skin is privileged. And that's bullshit. At the end of the day, look, there is privilege. My kids are privileged, and I worked my ass off for them to be privileged. Your kids are privileged. Our kids are privileged because they have a loving family, because we nurture them, because we sacrificed our life to end the cycle, to end the cycle of, of just uh, of mediocrity. And that's what we did. So what it takes is that one generation, that one person, no matter where you're living, if you're living in the barrio, if you're living in the hood, if you're living where I used to spend my time, Eagle, California, if you're living in Memphis, Tennessee, if you're living in Brentwood, Tennessee, and just happen to have a shitty situation around you, an abusive household, it takes that one generation to say this is it we can't do this anymore because when you come from an alcoholic family you're more likely to be an alcoholic when you come from an abusive family you're more likely to be in an abusive situation so if you have that one that one person who's inspired by a teacher a coach this is why i coach a teacher a coach whatever it is to be able to say stop it i'm going to make the difference right now and that's where we're lacking we lack that male figure and yes i said male because usually it has to be male now it can be female it can definitely be female, but at the end of the day, when my life turned around, there was a coach um, in high school, and I was, you know, I was small, undersized, and Coach Miles and Leon Hatton, our outside linebacker was Leon Hatton. He was a year older than me. I was a sophomore going into my junior year, and Coach Miles, six foot four, 300 pounds, he used to bench 405 like it was 135, one of those guys, right? Big beast, you know, um, he was a reverend, just a good guy. And I said, I want to train with you guys. When I was 13, I said, I want to train with you guys. I want to start next year as a junior because I had nowhere to go. Football was my way out of my situation. And Coach Miles said, you can't hang with us. I said, I can't. And so he said, if you could do this incline press with us, we, you, can, you can join us. And I I'm probably tore every muscle in my body when I did it, but I got it. You know, I got like six reps. From that point on, that changed my life. Because Leon gave me that brother figure that my brother moved out. He was way older, six years older than me. Leon was my older brother. And, and keep in mind, let's, let's, let's erase. When you, these were both black men. These were not like just some rich white dude. These were two, Coach Miles was, these were both black guys. So my initial role models were just hardworking, um, amazing people who it doesn't but what i'm saying is it doesn't there is no racial barriers for role models you know what i mean like these guys set forth here's what you need to do to make it to the next level right and they took me under their wing and leon gave me that brother figure um, coach miles gave me that father figure i needed so we all can make a difference but it takes that one person that one coach that one teacher to make a difference if the kid doesn't have a parent now we don't need to worry about that because we're there for our kids we're there every step of the way, showing them what we feel is the proper path to success, to greatness, to just being a good person. And I think that's where we lack in society is we lack those role, we lack those Leons, we lack those Coach Miles, we lack those individuals who can take a kid like me who is just on a quick path to either drug addiction or death, and put them on the right path. And that's what we need more of. Oh, absolutely. You know, everybody is screaming about the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but the real pandemic are, you know, the, the lack of male role models for young men. You know, 
people like to say, you know, men have privilege, this world belongs to men. Da, 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 da. Well, it hasn't really been that fucking easy uh, <laughs> for men in the last 3,000 years. You know, we're the first to get signed up to go fight. We're the first to die. We're the most to commit suicide. We're the most likely to die in a work-related, you know, incident. And mm-hmm. when shit hits the fan, nobody turns to the pretty little lady in a, sur- in, in a sundress. They look over to the guy scratching his nuts. <laughs> you know, like, hey, bro, you, are you going to step up? But, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, there has to be a male influence. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I came from a fatherless home. And one of my big turnarounds was that I'm going to make sure my kids have a father. Now, it wasn't my dad's fault. He died. But it was still something that I struggled with. I had no one to teach me how to be a man. And my mom, she was a good mom yeah. know, for all of her faults. She did the best she could. And, you know, maybe she screwed up a little bit wanting to put her kid up for adoption because he was going to take away her meal ticket. But for all of her faults she was an okay mom Mm -hmm. but there's no way my mom could have taught me how to be a man yeah you know i have one daughter right i have eight sons so i can teach my sons yeah men but i can't teach my daughter how to be a woman they need she needs her mother yes i can my role is to show my daughter what a man should be like how he should carry himself and how he should behave but I can't teach her how a woman should be, you know, just like you, know, you can be the greatest single mom in the world, but you're still not doing double duty. I had a lot of people pissed off at me because I ran a sale uh, for my website, Rugged Legacy. And uh, the code for 20% off was uh, not single Mother's Day. On <laughs> and, I'm sorry. That's great. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, you can be the greatest single mom in the world and yeah there are the few exceptions uh to the rule but kids without two parents without a male role model and a female role model in the form of a mother figure and father figure they're at a severe developmental disadvantage Um, especially Mm -hmm. when they're going off into society and trying to become a well-rounded and well-balanced human being Mm -hmm. you know i think i said you know single moms aren't doing the dad's job they're just playing uh, they're doing the mom's job on survival mode. Yeah, because they're, 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 they have to actively seek to find a coach, a sensei, a pastor, uh, you know, whatever it is that's going to be a male influence for her children. Yeah, absolutely. You, the, we we tend to get so caught up in political correctness that there are biological roles. And I had, I I, I was doing an Instagram live the other day, and this guy's like, "Are you ever going to apologize for saying there's only two genders?" I'm like. Look, biologically, there's only two genders, but science, but I mean, you can identify as whatever you want. I'm one of those guys. I don't, as long as it doesn't affect me, that's fine. I don't care what you identify as, but at the end of the day, there's a male figure and a female figure. And a lot of problems is there are a lot of male figures out there that are not, that are basically emasculated. We've taken the male and we've told them that masculinity is toxic. Like, oh, it's, it's toxic to me. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. Like, I'm sorry, masculinity is not toxic. Lifting heavy things, doing manual labor, that is not toxic. That's what men do historically. We are programmed to do it. It's what we do. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. Like, I'm not worried about cancel culture coming and saying, oh, Mark, he's a misogynist. He's um, he's, he's sexist. No, I'm not sexist. I just believe we all have our roles. That's not not saying 
that you can't have a female who can power lift 800 pounds. That's not saying that you can't have a female working as a cop, as a CEO. That's saying that generally speaking, we have certain things we do. And like you said, you know, men tend to make more. Sometimes you get, oh, well, men make more money. Well, a lot of jobs that require you to risk your life, like mine work and stuff, women aren't taking those jobs. You know, right. men have a, such a higher work. Because women, generally speaking, you're not going to die from a paper cut being a paralegal. Okay? But you will die from having a mine shaft fall on your head. Or, you know, I'm watching these guys the other day. There's the Nissan building down the street, the Nissan headquarters. And these guys are like propelling. There's not one. I've never seen a female do it. They're, these guys are propelling, cleaning windows. I'm like, holy crap. I mean, and they're like, and also the construction workers. We're in a, a developing community. They're literally standing on a scaffolding. Like I would freak out just putting bricks up and hammering and walking like it's nothing. Like that stuff. Like I don't see, I've never seen a woman do that. And maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. But that's, that's, that's ingrained in us because those jobs are there. They're there. But women generally aren't doing them. And nobody's saying they can't. Uh, these, these guys, like, they're in demand. Like, they're building so many houses in these developing communities because everybody's moving out of the cities. Like, they're building so many houses. I guarantee you there's not one woman who would get turned down for that job if she could do it. Oh, absolutely not. But like you, I'm not really all that worried about cancel culture coming at me. I wrote a book called Leading Your Wife, The Man's Guide to Becoming the Patriarch. So if anybody's going to get canceled before you, it'll be me. I need to read that, by the way. I'm going to get that today. Um, <laughs> All right. I'll drop a link for it. That's perfect. Um, yeah. It's, you know, there's, I've been, at the end of the day, I, I think the problem is it's a very vocal minority. If you look at even Twitter statistics, that'll tell you. It's like 20% of America actually has Twitter. And out of that, less than 1% actually comments on Twitter. It's a very small microcosm. That's why we can't judge our society by what we see on that social media platform. I, I posted this morning, tweeted, which is ironic, that I've been around, I've traveled since this whole pandemic and the riots and all this. I've gone to Atlanta, I've gone to Ohio, I've even gone to Nashville the day after we had the riots. It's not what you see on the news. Like we're seeing stuff that I think is either exaggerated, maybe small pockets, but America is still nice. America is still kind. America is still a good place to live. Like if you watch the media, I got people from the UK writing me all the time. Like, man, it must be crazy over there. I'm like, no, no, nothing's weird. Like nothing's weird. Like even with the pandemic, it, you go and you'll see, you know, some people wear masks. I mean, obviously I'm in Tennessee, but even in Georgia and Ohio, it wasn't as crazy as you see. Now maybe New York and those, you know, socialist shitholes, maybe they have issues, but I haven't seen anything even in, I mean, I was in, again, like I was in Atlanta this week. And nothing was weird. Nothing. So I don't know what's going on. I don't know if they're showing us something that's not happening. I don't know if maybe I'm just looking in the wrong place. But I think that we're seeing a bunch of sensationalism. And it's not new. Sensationalism, I remember, I don't know if you remember, a lot of people, a lot of your listeners remember, but 1980s, like, Reagan used to have the same issue. He just didn't have Twitter against him, man. He used to call them limousine liberals, man. And he used to go off on liberals just like Trump does, even worse. He just didn't have a chance to tweet it, dude. Ronald, he used to go on, he used to just blast him at every news conference. Like, Trump's not new. The phenomenon of the anti-liberal president is not new. It's a blast back. We had Obama for eight years, we swang back, and now we have the cancel culture, the leftist culture. And then sooner or later, it's like a rubber band is going to swing back. It's just what America's been doing since the beginning. You know, you go, Car I mean, look, just look at presidents. You go Carter to Reagan to Bush. 
Um, you know, to, to Clinton, you know, you always have this rubber band effect of presence, this boomerang effect. And people are tripping like it's the end of the country. Dude, we survived Jimmy Carter. We survived both Bushes. Like America's stronger than that. And the base of America, we're not, I don't, as a whole, the thing that worries me most, again, is, is the statistics of inner cities, you know, and you have 22%, it was 77% of inner city household had two parents in 1960s. And now we're down to 22%. That's the most alarming trend I see because with that statistic comes a whole bunch of other really scary statistics. Oh yeah, definitely. But you know, with the back and forth between it's going to swing left, it's going to swing right. The problem that I've seen is that uh, intersectionality has become a doctrine in and of itself. <clears throat> you know, people see me and I'm very, uh, pro-man, uh, pro-men's rights, pro-father, pro-patriarch. Yeah. And, and people lump me into one box. They go, oh, well, you're a Trump supporter. I'm apolitical. If, it's, yeah. has any, if it has anything to do with the government, fuck them. I'd rather we didn't have it. Just small state-ran governments and be done with it. If you don't like one, yeah. move to the other. But, you know, my, my wife's Hispanic. My kids are mixed. One of my sons is gay. But you automatically get lumped into, well, you believe in this, so you're yeah. automatically everything else, and there's no room for nuance anymore, and that's why no one can have any goddamn conversations with each other. You're absolutely correct. We have, it's become very, I just, uh, I don't know if you see Zuby on, um, on Yeah, I was actually on Zuby's podcast last year. He's fascinating, uh, but he actually, we talked about this ad nauseum, it's all tribalism. Like, we've become such mm -hmm. a tribalist society, where if you, you have to buy into everything, so I have just as many people from the right hate me as the left because I'll call it like it is. And I'm like, hey, on this issue, it was wrong. Oh, no, 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 MAGA. You know, and then the other side, it's like, well, I think Trump did good on this one. Oh, you're a racist. I'm like, but I didn't even say anything about race. Like, and then they're posting these generic memes of all the bad things Trump did. I'm like, I'm not taking up for this guy. Like, he's not my guy. Trust me, he was like one of my last choices in the primary. You know, I'm like, this is not the guy. I was more of a Rand Paul type guy, to be honest with you, more of a libertarian kind of guy. Again, like I said the other day, like, I can't, I just can't roll with the Democrat party right now. I wish I could because I'd love to have that other option, but at least who they have running right now, you know, um, Biden is, he, he's, he's clearly not in his right mind. So, you know, for me, it's not really a choice of, it's a choice of dementia versus crazy. And that's a really crappy choice. Yeah. And we don't have another Nancy Reagan to run it for the second term like she did. <laughs> yeah, Nancy, everybody forgets about that. Reagan was, uh, it's amazing how long he lived after his presidency when he was, I mean, that guy, and he was still pretty with it until like the last four or five years. But I mean, th that's another problem. Our presidents are really freaking old. Like that was the refreshing thing about Obama is he was young, he was healthy, like apparently healthy somewhat you know a good looking fit guy and then we get trump who's 70 hillary was like 72 bernie if, if biden wins he will literally be what is it? if he goes all eight years there's no way he's living that long 80 what is that 86 years old 86 86 87 years old like that is old like that's that i mean i don't care who you are you're, you're not all there at 86 years old you're not like, you're going to be slow. You're going to be tired. Like, that's like me going to a local convalescent home and be like, yo, who wants to be president? And like, you know, they throw their teeth in the air and everything's 
crazy now. Like, why are they so old? Can't we find anybody who's not above 70? I'm not saying I'm, eight, I'm like ageist or I'm anti-old people, but Biden is clear. Like, even Joe Rogan called out, he is apolitical, as you'll ever see. The guy is not in his right mind. Like, he's nuts. Like, what, that, that, that's when I, I realized we're not voting for the best person, right? It's a machine. So, and what I also learned about this, and you're all for states' rights, and so this period of time should actually be good for you because, honestly, the states have called the shots through this entire thing. Trump has not been able to do anything. He's been completely neutered um, for the handling of the pandemic from state to state to the handling of the riots from state to state. I mean, we're just seeing basically the Tenth Amendment in process right now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with um, with the pandemic and everything being handled by the states, we're seeing a whole lot of empty threats from the federal government. Uh, you know, if you don't handle it, we will. Nothing's been handled. You know, no, no, no one can get on the same page, uh, or at least come to some type of a compromise. And you know we're not going to. It's like what you were talking about with the tribalism. Uh, the the problem with tribes is that when a tribe gets so big, it splits into splinter factions, and then the splinter factions will go to war, which is again the whole issue with intersectionality. Yeah. But in the end, like you said, we're not we're not trying to pick the best person. We're trying to pick the least worst person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's a hard position to be put in, especially when you know, I have children, you have children, when, when we're not going to live forever. And so we're trying to create and raise human beings as fathers who are going to be able to go out and navigate this whirlwind, you know, and at least maybe come out on the other side in one piece. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, you don't, obviously you don't want to, tort that's why you, you really have to look at what you're doing now. And, and look, I'd, I'd love for there to be a third party and I, I'd love nothing more, but right now we're stuck in this system and a third party vote is a wasted vote. Hate to say that, but I was libertarian for years. Um, that changed in 2016 because Gary Johnson was off his rocker. Like that was, and I'm like, dude, this party cannot be seen seriously after this guy. And, um, you know, so, and, and Bill Weld was just as horrible of a VP nominee. So I kind of jumped off the libertarian bandwagon. And now I, I consider myself a conservative, you know, conservative leaning. Because again, not because I, I agree with the conservatives 100%. It's because I don't agree with anything the Democrats are doing right now. I just can't, I, I don't agree. I don't like what they do. I'm just, it is what it is. And I'm not in love with the conservatives, but there's no third party. Like the libertarian platform, I think is great i think it's probably the best one but they're they're kind of nuts like so we're, we're in a, a very weird cross section but remember there's always been there needs to be a new like i was just i was on a podcast and we were talking about like remember the, the republican and democrats like those weren't always the two parties like sooner or later there will be a shift there will be a third party there will be a change but i don't think it's going to happen not definitely not this election cycle and what we need is someone, like, if Trump ran as a third party, he would have probably won, like, in, in that election. Because Hillary was horrible, and, you know, he would have got a lot of middle-of-the-road guys. So unless someone like Trump decides to run as a third party and take a risk, you're going to be stuck with two parties. But imagine if, like, The Rock came out and ran as his own party. The Rock would win. The Rock would win by a 90% margin. Like, unless something like that happens, we're stuck. Um, and it is what it is, you know, so, you know, I, all, all you can do, and this is what I tell people is you control your own, 
Like, make sure you take care of your kids. Make sure you work. Don't rely on government assistance. You know, when this whole pandemic went down, people were like, oh, no, I'm losing my job. I'm going to get, I'm like, don't rely on the unemployment. Go get, dude, Amazon's hiring. They're paying, the starting pay is like $22.50 an hour. Um, Aldi's hiring 19 hour. Walmart's hiring 5,000 people a day. Get, if that's not enough money, get two jobs. Like, work night shift, day shift. But that's the thing. When things get tough, people don't hustle anymore. They cower and they ask for assistance. You know, they lost that grit. They lost pride. And that's the problem. People are like, oh, no, everything's falling apart. What do I do? And they obviously always look for that handout instead of saying, okay, I got to get to work. Yeah. And that's where we see the entrance, like you said, of victim culture. And uh, I actually wrote an article last night. Victim culture and counterculture are essentially the two illegitimate children of an unholy union. Wow. If you look at it with the way that victim culture is what bred cancel culture. Yeah. And you were saying, you, you know, Trump would have won a lot of the middle of the road guys and that's okay. But there is a problem with being in the middle of the road. Right? The only thing that really exists in the middle of the road is roadkill. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, right now we've got uh, a lot of people who are afraid to choose a side on anything. And it doesn't have to be a little left or the right. It could be a third side, but you need yeah. to choose a side. But people aren't choosing sides anymore. People are afraid to choose a side and they're being told what side they should align with. And that way, that keeps them from having the responsibility of their actions and making the choice. So if it goes wrong, they can blame and say, you, you did this. Yeah. You told me to do this. But if they get hit by a car standing in the middle of the road, a you know, metaphorical car, yeah. it's still both sides' fault because no one could give them a convincing enough argument to choose. With Go Hunt America, you can experience your own outdoor adventure at the touch of your finger. You can find hunting, fishing, and camping spots anywhere in the U.S., put there by private landowners, and you can even list your own. It doesn't matter if it's a large tract of land or a small duck blind. Just go to GoHuntAmerica.com to get started. Coming soon to the Google Play and Apple App Store. Hey, this is Nate from Unlimited Live Concepts, and we teach people how cash flow strategy can be just as powerful as investing. Imagine being able to earn interest off of every dollar that flows through your hands, whether you're spending it or saving it. We offer a lifetime membership to our financial education platform for $77, but right now you can use promo code RUGGEDLEGACY and save 50% off. Kind of like the bully, you know, the bully gets emboldened uh, by no one ever fighting back and no one ever punching him in the mouth. Yeah. And so he keeps doing it. But when he comes across someone who's not going to take that shit anymore, and he gets punched in the face. He immediately identifies as the victim because everybody else 
was the one that never were the ones that never told him that someone out there is going to punch you. And so now all of a sudden he's the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And they and people have taken this, you know, well now I'm the oppressed and they used what uh Jack Donovan. Have you heard of Jack Donovan? Yes I have. Yeah. Um in his book, uh, A More Complete Beast, he talks a bit about transvaluation, where basically these, pe- these people who have convinced themselves that they are oppressed, uh, they're victims, that any value or virtue is now the opposite of what it means. Hmm. You were obviously very big into the fitness uh, genre of things. You know, yeah. you've, you've got Tiger Fitness, you've, again, you've got your supplement line. But there are people out there who will look at strength and see it as a negative mm. because your strength will inconvenience them and oppresses them because they haven't gotten the exact same results you have because it's not natural. It didn't come naturally to them. Yeah. And so that's where they're the victims and they immediately decide we need to cancel anybody who's strong, anybody who's self-reliant, anybody who can choose a side anybody who is independent, anybody who is, you know, an individual sovereign. And I don't mean the crazy sovereign citizen people. <laughs> yeah. You know, but anyone who possesses <clears throat> any kind of virtue, you know, honesty, integrity, honor, all these, mm-hmm. they've in their own heads, they've changed the value, you know, the equational value of what those things mean to be a negative simply mm-hmm. because they don't have it. Yeah. And yeah. Counterculture, I mean, uh, uh, cancel culture is getting more and more emboldened because they keep getting people to kneel and apologize and backtrack on their words. And we're not going to get that shit to stop until someone, just like they punch the bully in the mouth, refuses to apologize. I couldn't agree more. And I forgot which company did it, but they they referenced like something that happened 10 years ago and the company was like, sorry you feel about from something 10 years ago that we tweeted. Um, I forgot which company it was for some reason. You, you might remember. Domino's. Domino's, yes. And they had a. They I had believe- thanked a 19 year old girl uh, because she shouted out Domino's and said, You're the best pizza on the planet. And then they said, Thank you. 10 years later, 12 years later, she works for President Trump. Well, all of a sudden, they thanked a racist and they thanked someone who, you know, was a Trump supporter. When. That wasn't even a thing 12 years ago. Trump didn't exist other than reality TV 12 years ago. Yeah, that was. Oh, dude, he was. uh, The funny, just a digression here. Trump was the least racist guy in the world till he became president. Now, just keep that in mind. Like, and that's another way of cancel culture. You can't. The other day, I, I was, I was someone wrote something and it was someone within the fitness industry and he's, he's, he's kind of a weirdo. And someone sent it to me, tagged me in and said, what do you think of this? And it was like, if you say you're not racist, you're actually racist. I'm like, what the f- does that even mean? Like, so cancel culture has become so emboldened that they're saying shit that doesn't even make sense, bringing up tweets from 12 years ago before MAGA was even a thing. And they're making it into something worthy of canceling a company. I'll tell you what, my wife drove by Taco. Now we live in, we live in a conservative area, you know, outside of a liberal area of Nashville. We live in a very conservative suburb 
and my wife drove by Chick-fil-A and I drove by Chick-fil-A and there was like, there's usually a line out uh, down the road. This is after the comments from it, right? The whole like, if you're white, you need to shine a black person's shoes to atone for whatever. And so there was like two cars in line. Not a big deal, you know, slow time. Taco Bell had a line. My wife literally was stuck in 10 minutes of traffic. Have you ever heard of a line for Taco Bell? No. So my opinion is, you know, if you cancel someone, if that company's smart, they play it and they work it up because guess what? Like we're still in like a 40, 40 country with kind of 10, per you're fighting over five to 10% of the vote. You're trying to get your base to vote. And it's become that way where if you get canceled and you play it right and um, Taco Bell just didn't say anything. They were just like, you know, we have a uniform, you got to wear it. And that's, that's where they played it right. So for cancel culture, it can actually really help a company and look at, look at how good my pillow is doing it. It's okay to have an opinion and I'll fight for that. I'd rather go out of business than sit here and be wishy-washy with my thoughts. I just don't think that's a good way to live your life. And it also just depraves people of something. I had an email I tweeted the other day. This guy's like, your silence about, about the black killings are deafening. Like this means you're a racist. I'm like, well, I did post the black square on my Instagram because my two business partners in one of my company didn't. It would be weird for the only business partner not to post it. So I did that, put a Martin Luther King uh, post. I stand, look, and I've said this all along, the term Black Lives Matter, I'll, 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 I'll die on a hill for that term. The group Black Lives Matter believes in the destruction of the nuclear family and Marxism. I'm not going to die on that hill. So I will definitely, for the term Black Lives Matter, yeah, I'm all for it. Of course they matter. Yeah. But when you go, and so you know what, as a show of solidarity for my partners and for my customers who believe in it, here it is. But I'm not going to sit here and every day tweet about some virtue signaling when I might have an alternative opinion or I might, I'm not going to go and say that that latest killing in Atlanta, Georgia wasn't justified. The guy wrestled a taser out of a cop's hands, tased him, ran away, turned around to tase him again, and he got shot. You and I, as privileged as we are, we would have gotten shot too. We would have probably gotten shot sooner in the conversation. Um, the cops were obviously playing it very safe. They did all they could not to use excessive force. That's why they got commandeered, got overtaken probably. And there they are. So it's an unfortunate situation, but somehow they turned that into something it wasn't. It wasn't. It just, that was a justified shooting. So I'm not going to go out here and say, well, that one was racism too. Like, I don't know. You know, it, it could have been, but chances are, if any of us did that, do you think in your right mind, if you wrestled a taser away from a cop, reached for his waistband, shot him once with it, ran away, turned around to shoot him again, that you're not going to get killed? Right. But again, that's where the intersectionality comes in. Well, Bingo. because you did not, you know, speak out vehemently against every, and agree with every single point, well, you're obviously a racist, Mark. Yeah, that's, um, that's unfortunate. Because it, it takes away all dialogue, and dialogue is how you heal. Dialogue is how you come to a conclusion. And what do you think? Peace treaties. Peace treaties, historically, in wartime, are made to basically get it where people can talk about things and work it out. And there's no negotiating. They literally came up with a police reform bill. But because it was by Republicans, again, a black Republican authored it, there was no reason why that wasn't passed, other than just, again, the, the partisanship and just the cancer, all that stuff, it has nothing to do with what's right or wrong. And that's the problem is that both sides can't work together anymore. So like you said, you have to choose teams because there's no negotiating. There's no reaching across the aisle. Remember that old cliche? 
It's right. just a bunch of little dick motherfuckers arguing about shit that they have no intention of changing. They have no intention of fixing it. And that's what's really fucking aggravating. Because I'm like, just get the deal done. Figure it out. And they can't do it. They can't do it. No. And with... To me, what it comes down to is when you were talking about it just completely destroys the possibility for dialogue. What we're seeing is we're seeing people who are debating their side to someone who wants to be seen as right. And the person yeah. listening is listening to someone who wants to be seen as right. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is they're listening and they're arguing to be right rather than to be understood. Mm -hmm. Are there stupid ideas from the left as much as there are stupid ideas from the right? Yes. Do both sides have to agree on every little point? No. Mm -hmm. But they would get a lot further if they actually, rather than with the buzzwords and the talking points, I mean, hell, I got called a fucking Nazi the other day. Mm -hmm. But without the buzzwords and the talking points and the old cliche finger pointing bullshit, if they sought to actually understand the other side and both sides are fucking guilty of this. Yes. Of not doing it. If they just sought to understand the other, the other, the other side's perspective, then maybe we could get somewhere, but they're too concerned with being right. And that comes down to empathy. Like we were talking about earlier, like, Okay, let's talk about systemic racism, right? Let's talk about, let's talk, let's dialogue, let's talk about it on both sides and let's come up with an answer. Let's talk about it. And the thing is we're lacking in society and it could be, could be tribalism, could be social media, it could be the Twitter generation, but all these people in, in, in government have been in office for 50 plus years. So we can't blame that. Biden's been in office like more than I've been alive and I'm 40. You know, it's like, I'm not a spring chicken, man. And uh, so the, the the whole, the whole issue is they have no intention of fixing anything and they have no intention of doing anything but getting their talking points across and that's toxic. But on to systemic racism, here's what I've said. You know, we need to, in the 1960s, the civil rights marches, there was a tangible goal, a measurable, tangible goal. We are going to end segregation. Done. Single sentence. They marched. How do you know segregation's over? We share water fountains. Easy, right? Done. Black Lives Matter. We're gonna end systemic racism and racism in general. That's not possible. Like, you can't tell somebody how to feel. I don't like racism either, but it's always gonna be there. I'm a Jew. People are always gonna hate Jews. It's just something I've come to deal with. So there's always gonna be a small fraction of society who's just stupid. And you have to live with that. But systemic racism, how do you measure that? No one's given me like a number, a measurement. You can't make change unless you can measure progress. Like in the gym, if you want to go up and bench press, you're doing 135 pounds for eight reps and you get 135 pounds for nine reps, you've made progress, right? You've made a tangible, measurable progress, right? How do you measure systemic racism? Because the stats actually point to the fact there being no systemic racism. And if anything, the, the people who are really systemically benefiting are Asians. They're crushing it. You know, so I'm looking at it like, okay, how do we met? I want to change. Let's end systemic racism. What do we do? Marxism. That's not how you end systemic racism. Marxism doesn't work. Well, 
we need to end the nuclear family. No statistics, it's not how you do it. So what is the answer? Why can't we talk about this? You can't just throw out blanket terms and yell and yell and yell until someone listens when you have no measurable goal. Whoever's leading this is either trying to play everybody, which is a probability, or just has no idea what the F they're doing. But I think they know exactly what they're doing. It's dividing. And these protesters, they have no idea why they're there. Why are you here? And racism. That's a stupid thing to say. How, how is protesting going to end some stupid mofo who thinks that, you know, somebody's inferior because of their melanin? You know, it's just, right. there's no tangible goal. It's just people marching to nowhere. Yeah. You know, and I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, like I said, you know, my wife is Hispanic, my kids are mixed, and I live in the South. I'm in South Carolina. Yeah. And so everywhere I go with my wife, if she's or if she's by herself, the first assumption is, well, she doesn't speak English. Mm -hmm. And I live maybe 20 miles from, I think, the country's largest strawberry farm. Right? And they get a lot of uh, immigrant workers, legal and some illegal, to come mm -hmm. over and work the fields during the summer and plant, and then they leave and go back and they come back every yeah. year. But anywhere she goes by herself, they automatically assume she can't speak English. I mean, really? They, they went, yeah. They go to speak to her and they're, you know, or she comes up to a cash register and the first thing that they do is they're like, hey, uh, so-and-so, do you speak Spanish? Like, the fuck? <laughs> you know, it, well, it's, maybe, it's and the just first thing that they're used to people not being able to speak English who look a certain way. I don't know. So, right. But that in itself is, of course, a stereotype. Oh, absolutely. Just like, um, but we oh, can't. It's always going to be there, it, no? Right, yeah, we can't say that it doesn't exist. We can stop or try to put a stop to people acting out, you know, malicious, driven stereotypes. Yes. We can, we can, we can enforce laws that prevent people from doing these things. You cannot pass a law that prevents someone from thinking a certain way or saying a certain thing. Mm -hmm. We can't do that, and there's no way to measure that because, I mean, yeah, we know Alexa's fucking listening in on the goddamn, you know, <laughs> the dot. But <laughs> for all these people that do not want the government to browbeat them with everything they're allowed to do, and then mm -hmm. they, then they'll, you know, claim they're being oppressed by a tyrannical government. You, I mean, you have to. At, at some point take responsibility for what you can do and what you can't do. That, that's absolutely true. And, you know, the thing is, there's enough success stories and enough, there's enough anecdotal evidence to show that we're, we're in a, a society's best. Of, I like when people say America's never been this racist. I'm like, in the 1960s, Lyndon B. Johnson literally dropped the N-bomb in press conferences. Joe Biden himself in the 70s would drop the N-bomb in press conferences. You know, you had the civil rights marches of the 60s. You had the 1860s where James K. Polk went and just took part of Mexico because he felt like it. You know, America is in the greatest um, period of enlightenment ever. This is the greatest the world has ever been. And we're in the greatest country, in my opinion, on this planet. So my question is, it's look, can it get better? Dude, it can always get better. You know, one of the guys I train with is the current Mr. Olympia, the best in the world. He trains every day to become better. We should always strive for greatness. We should always strive to be better. However, you know, to think that this society has actually progressed from where we were, you know, 
15, 20, 30. I was in the 90s, dude. The 90s were way worse than that. You know, the, yeah. we've come so far. And all I'm seeing now is, is mostly, you know, people who didn't live through those periods who have no idea what it was like. You know, all these kids marching in the streets saying, this is the worst it's ever been. I'm like, bro, you were born in 2001. Calm down. Like, this ain't the worst it's ever been. It's not. And it's right. going to get it, better. It might be the worst you've seen it. But it's not yes. the worst it's ever been. And, you know, like what you were saying earlier, when you had your friends uh, who were, you know, from all over the world, the UK and whatever, thinking it's crazy to live here. There's plenty of places here where there's absolutely nothing going on. Mm -hmm. And if it weren't for the media or social media or anything like that, they would not know it was going on. And, you know, and again, like you had said previously, it's the sensationalism bringing it up and that's why we're seeing young kids you know my my, my third oldest son uh, turned 18 last week and he just moved to upstate new york and he to him it's a brand new world and of course he's 18 he knows everything there is to know you know he's going to teach me a few things because yeah he knows everything at age 18 of course right but he's looking at things through you know the eyes of babes and that's what we're seeing with this young generation who, like you said, are screaming and hollering. It's the worst it's ever been. It's the worst they've seen. Yeah. And yeah, America does not have the prettiest history when it comes to uh, racism or prejudices or nope. warmongering. I mean, we're up there with just everybody else. But of course, any type of patriotism, everybody likes to gloss over the ugly parts. They don't want to remember that part or highlight that part because then they have to try to justify it. Just say we're fucked up, just like everybody else is fucked up. Yep. But the point is that we start working on it. But we can't work on it without, like you said, a measurable goal. We have to know where we're going so we know what steps to take to get there. You know, I want you know, legs like Mark Lobliner. So that means I have to squat more. That means I have to leg press more. I know what has to be done to get there. But no, we don't know the destination of where we're headed. Everybody just wants things to get better, but no one has actually sat down and articulated just what the fuck better is. Yes, that's the problem. We need to articulate that, and we need to actually have a measurable goal on how to do that. And that's what we're getting at here, is that we don't have that measurable measurable um that measurable okay it's gotten better things are better now we could just chill we can hang out and everybody's good so we don't have that actual measurable goal and that's a huge problem in that we can't make things better if we don't know where to go and there's nobody stepping up and leading the charge saying that hey this is where we need to go this is they're just saying we need to end systemic racism. We need to end this. We need to end that. And you just can't. You can't do it. You need to have. You need to have a goal. And just marching and saying these generic terms, systemic racism, systemic racism. That's great, and it feels good, and we're marching. Okay, what do we do? Because the rest of us want to know what do we do? What do you want? Because I am in. I am down for that. I want to end it too. What do we do to end it? And there's no leader on that side who's like. This is exactly what we need to do. This is exactly where we need to go. And that's the sad part because there's a lot of people being misled and that's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, I, I was just saying to uh, 
a friend yesterday, you know, who's working on his business. His business has grown and exploded and is continuing to grow because he has a vision of what the end is. And so he's making these articulated and planned steps to get there. Mm -hmm. And granted, we can start working without knowing the destination. And if we feel like we're not going in the right direction, we can always pivot because it's easier Mm -hmm. to pivot when you're already moving than it is to go from zero to one. Absolutely. We can do that. We can do that. But we're not even moving in any direction. We're standing still arguing about what direction to go in. And we can't argue because we can't converse. It goes back to the cancel culture you were talking about earlier. As soon as someone brings up something that hurts someone's feelings or might not be exactly on message, instead of discussing it and winning hearts and minds, you're just like, you're evil, you're racist, you're a Nazi. I've been called a Nazi so many times and I'm a Jew. <laughs> like, and then someone's like, what do you mean a Jew can't be a white supremacist? I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's one of the qualifications for being a white supremacist. You know, so it's just, it's absolutely insane that we just Somewhere can't in the bylaws. I haven't read the fine print yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that, look, if I went and I said, okay, I want to join the KKK, they'd be like, are you a Jew? <laughs> I'm sure that would be somewhere <laughs> in the conversation. I, I just, but I don't understand how I've seen black people called Nazis and white supremacists. It's gotten so weird. You had that video of a white woman yelling at a black cop, calling him an Uncle Tom. I'm like, whoa, wait, like, I don't know if that's right. Like there's certain things that just don't make sense here. It's gotten completely insane, completely out of hand. And I just want it to stop. I just want people to get along. Like we're always going to have issues in this country. And, and, and I understand that we don't, like you said, we don't come from the prettiest past. We have an ugly history, an ugly history. And you know, old countries that have stuff have like, look at the Spanish colonization, look at the, you know, Africa colonization, look at all these different countries, Morocco, Egypt, every country has a dirty history. All right. Ours is pretty dirty, but I don't know if you've read the book choice theory, but you kind of have to move on. Like dwelling on that. We have to know our history. We have to learn our past, but dwelling on that stuff and just keeping it will hold you back more than it lets you go forward. And that's the book choice theory. You know, choice theory is about don't let the past, now the past acknowledge it exists, but don't let it hold you back. It's your choice to do that. And we just need to have some thinkers and we need to have an honest conversation of, okay, how do we make this better? What is the tangible measurable goal? Cause in any business, as you know, as a businessman, you need a tangible measurable goal. You need to have that. You need to have those things. And unfortunately right now they don't exist. We're arguing semantics and theory and you can argue and debate theory all you want. But the thing about debating theory is you never truly come to a conclusion. You're debating a theory, and right now we're debating theory. So we need actual measurable statistics of which we can uh, attain, you know, try to strive to, to reach. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Um, so if we're right there at that hour mark uh, before we go. Uh, is there anything you want to kind of add? I know you've got some things going on business-wise, but th- this wasn't exactly the way I'd planned this conversation to go, but I'm really glad it did because uh, it speaks to what's going on in the world today. It's, it's a conversation that no one really wants to have. Mm-hmm. And it, it, but it still needs to be said. It still needs to be heard. I'm pretty sure it's going to rub some people the wrong way. But take it with a grain of salt is all I'm going to you know, say to anybody listening. You know, you're not required to agree with anything Mark has said or what I have said. But take it with a grain of salt. You know, you know, if you're going to debate something, don't 
don't debate it to be right. Debate to be understood so that people can see your side because no one can choose your side if they don't understand it. But, uh, Mark, is there anything you want to add before we uh, wrap this up? You know what, again, I just, I just want, it sounds cliche, but I just want world peace. You know, <laughs> I, think, I think everybody does. At least they should. Um, so how do we reach that faster and how do we reach equality and, you know, get together and, and also just going back to the man thing. Like if there's nothing wrong with masculinity, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Being masculine, being a father, being responsible, having a job, those are all good things. Nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing toxic about that. And for me, you know, I have tigerfitness.com, which is right now the number one internet retailer in the USA for nutritional supplements. The Outright Bar, which is available at number one selling bar at the Vitamin Shop. MTS Nutrition, which is available at many stores, including tigerfitness.com. Ambrosia Collective, which is, you know, a very cool health brand that also has the number one plant-based protein and vitamin shop. So uh, we're doing a lot of things, but man, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure and um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, I've been following you for a little bit, and I'm like, ah, I really gotta get around to getting this guy on. So yeah, it's been glad, it's been really awesome, glad, man. As you agreed, a anytime, anytime, and uh, all the best to you and your um your your tribe of kids. <laughs> that's a it's <laughs> a lot of kids. I stopped at three. I had a vasectomy. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been told that I am the most experienced at becoming a father. Yes, you are definitely a fertile man. Yeah. Be careful, Mark. You might be pregnant after this episode. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first. <laughs> all right, brother. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Uh, I appreciate you guys tuning in. And uh, this, this episode should put us over the 10,000 subscriber mark. So I want to appreciate. Uh, thank you all. And I really appreciate all the listeners and support. Be sure to check out the sponsors uh, for the ads that you heard uh, mid-roll. And stay tuned. You'll hear... Uh, some information about how you can support the Rugged Legacy podcast, which will help finance uh, my tribe of children. Uh, <laughs> that's going to do it for Mark Lobliner and myself. You guys have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Rugged Legacy podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the content on all of the episodes, especially this one here. If you'd like to become a contributor and support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash rugged legacy and click on the support icon. Everyone wants to rise from the ashes, but very few are willing to set themselves on fire. This has been a rugged legacy production. <laughs>